This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Oh, yes. Kids, we love you, but you've got your own classes this morning. So we'll see you a little later, okay? Bye. Okay, Acts chapter 2, 22 through 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch, David, that he, had, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has warned has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Thank you, Irv. So as humans, we get details wrong a lot, right? Uh, if you have any question about that, just look at your spouse and ask them if you, in fact, get details wrong a lot, and they will affirm that that is, in fact, true. Um, we remember things very poorly often. Um, let me prove it to you another way. So Forrest Gump, what's one of the most famous lines from Forrest Gump? Mama always says... Exactly. Except for that's not what the line actually is. It's actually past tense. My mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. It's nitpicky, I know, but that welcome to my brain. How about this? This is a little less nitpicky. How about Snow White? What does the evil queen say when she stares at the mirror? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest 
she actually doesn't say that. She actually says magic mirror on the wall, but everyone quotes it as mirror, mirror on the wall, right? How about, uh, well, to make you feel at home, I'll use a Star Wars reference since Jamie's not here today. So how about Luke, I am your father, right? We all quote that. That's never actually in the movie. Did you know that? He actually says, no, I am your father. So you're all wrong. Congratulations. <clears throat> we get stuff wrong all the time. That's my point. Like, how can some of the most famous movies of all time have all of these quotes that go around and everyone just universally accepts them as true? The reality is, this is what Peter is trying to help us um, see in this uh, section of Acts, okay? So he is trying to set, Peter's concern is, don't take the best story of all time and screw it up, okay? That's what he's saying. In essence, so we are in the second of three parts of Peter's sermon at Pentecost that happens in the book of Acts. So last week, Jamie covered for us verses 1 through 21 in Acts uh, chapter 2, and that was the first part of the sermon at Pentecost, and it really deals with the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is and what it looks like to be a witness. Here, Peter is changing gears for us. And so we're going to pick up in verse 22 where Irv read for us. And here's Peter's main point for us that we want to see today. It's our big idea for the day. Don't miss who Jesus really is. Don't miss who Jesus really is. And Peter's going to unpack this in three specific ways for us from this text. So the first is this. Jesus is the defeater of death. Jesus is the defeater of death. And that's found in verses 22 through 24. So let your eyes fall back on the text. I want to read those verses again to help us um, see this. So men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In these three verses, Peter's really establishing or reminding the hearers that Jesus was a real guy. He actually physically walked the earth. He physically did all of these miracles. He was a real guy. He's going to establish this really in three, three ways through these three verses. The first is this. Jesus lived historically. He lived historically. Back in verse 22, God attested to Jesus living on earth by using mighty works and wonders and signs along with the testimony of a bunch of other people. Right? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jews demand signs. Right? And who was Jesus' ministry primarily to? It was primarily to Jewish people. So Jesus was going around doing all of these signs and wonders and miracles to establish who he was because that's what the Jews seek after, Paul tells us. It's why Peter specifically here addresses the Jews in a mixed crowd of people. So remember, as you remember back to the beginning of this, um, this book and also specifically this context of who Peter's preaching to, there's Gentiles here, there's Jews here, there's all of these various people, but Peter is narrowing his focus. Look again back at 22, men of Israel, right? Men of Israel. So specifically, he's like, hey, Jewish people, listen up. 
I'm speaking to you specifically right now in this moment. So how did Jesus make himself known? Well, through these signs and wonders and mighty works. And we could spend time unpacking all three of those specific words, but the, the reality is there's not a whole lot of difference between the three of them um, in what they actually mean. What, what Peter's going for is all-inclusive of what Jesus did. Think all about all the miraculous things that Jesus did. These things were well-known, obviously, right? Because it, it says in the text, as you yourself know. So these things, Jesus didn't do them in secret. They were happening. Word was traveling of who Jesus was. Did you know, so much so that did you know that Jesus of Nazareth is one of the most attested to people in all of history in that time? Did you know that? Did you know that um, you, you've all had history class, right? Anybody ever question whether Julius Caesar was a real dude who actually lived and walked? Did you know that there's as much or more evidence that Jesus of Nazareth lived than there was for Julius Caesar? He is so well attested to in the history of the world that it's unquestionable that Jesus was a real guy who really lived and walked and did miraculous things. It's not just, hey, there was this Jesus, but there was all this wonder and awe surrounding him because of all of these things. And why? Look back at your text. He was a man attested to you by who? By God. So God was the one who was attesting to, what is attesting to? Showing forth the quality of an entity. He was approved among you. So God was showing all of these people, this is who my son is. I want you to know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. This is all Peter's point. Jesus was the son of God and he was proved through the miraculous things that he did. And I don't want you to just know that historically. I want you to experience him. I want you to know who he is. I want you to walk in fellowship with him. So my family is kind of Disney fanatics. We love Disney World. Uh, up till the pandemic, Tobias had been at Disney every year of his life, including when he was like five weeks old on up. And we just love to go to Disney World. In fact, so much so that we do all of the, the crazy planning and know all of the restaurants and all of that and spend probably as much time planning the vacation as I actually spend on the vacation most of the time just because we're that fanatical about it. And I could tell you and I could walk you through all of those things and tell you how exciting it is, how much we love that ride and that restaurant and all of those things. But at the end of the day, when you walk into Disney World, you experience it differently than you do for me just saying it, right? This is what Peter's getting at. Like, yes, he was a real guy, but I want you to know him. I want you to walk in and understand who he is and be with him. Be reminded that Jesus was real. He's not just historically grounding them for the sake of historically grounding them, but for personal relationship to know this, this is a real person who really lived and walked and did things for you. So Jesus lived historically the second is this, Jesus was killed historically. He was killed historically. Jesus was killed by the Jews, by the Gentiles, and by the Romans, all who were carrying out the sovereign plan of God, Peter tells us. So this Jesus, this real, living, powerful Jesus was crucified. He was killed. 
But Peter really seeks in these next verse, this verse to really help us understand who killed Jesus. So, so let's look at that. Let's dive into that. So who killed Jesus? Well, first thing that he points to is that God the Father actually was a part of this plan, right? So what does he say? He says the, the definite plan. Luke frequently uses this definite plan language in his writing, and it really underscores his belief that God is so much in control of the events that are tied to Jesus and his plan that suffering was always a part of Jesus' calling. So that is who our God is. Let me prove it to you from Romans 8, verse 32. It says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? God the Father had a plan, a definite plan, and that was for Jesus to suffer. It says foreknowledge. Daryl Bach said this, thus from the divine perspective, nothing that happened was outside God's plan. God's attested one was always going to suffer. So God the Father was actively and presently pointing Jesus on this path. He also said the Jews crucified him, right? Where do we get that? Let your eyes fall back on this. Uh, Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who? You crucified and killed. Who's the you? The men of Israel, right? The Jewish people, they were responsible for killing Jesus, They killed the very Messiah that they had been anticipating for hundreds and hundreds of years. They killed him. And how did they kill him? Through the Romans, the Gentiles, those outside the law. It's this lawless men mentioned at the end of verse 23. F.F. Bruce says this about the lawless men. While the judge who sentenced him to this form of death and the soldiers who carried out the execution were Romans lawless men in the sense of being outside the range of the law of Israel, yet it was the Jewish authorities, more particularly the chief priests, who handed him over to the Romans. So God the Father planned it, the Jews wanted it, and the Romans actually carried it out. So who killed Jesus? Yes, they all did. Why does it matter? Why does Peter spend so much time here? Well, here's the thing. Jesus really lived and Jesus was really historically crucified. And everyone in that crowd was guilty of crucifying him. Yes, Jesus was real and so is our guilt in his death. Right? Yeah, you may say, well, but pastor, I I wasn't there. Right. You weren't there. Not physically but it was your sin that had to be paid for. You're sinful, right? Romans 3.23 says, What for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without sin, there is no reason that God had to crush his son, his perfect, miracle-working, powerful son. Jesus was really crucified, and your sin was really the reason for it. So two things, if that's new territory for you this morning, if that's a new thought to you, I want to talk to you after the sermon. I want to talk to you about how Jesus died for your sin and rose again victorious over that. But for some of us, this truth is kind of old and familiar, right? Like we've we've known it for a long, long time. But are we complacent about it? 
I wonder, does this truth still move us? Does the fact that your sin required the death of God still do something in you? Or are you just kind of like, eh, yeah, Jesus had to die, I'm sinful, eh, kind of stinks. Let me ask you this, how does how you treat your sin, what does that say about how much your sin actually grieves you? If you don't take your sin seriously, you don't take Jesus' sacrifice all that seriously. Or the fact that your sin put him there. We need to be a people who take our sins seriously because the sacrifice of the Son of God was a real event in history that he really suffered and bled and died on our behalf. Jesus was killed historically. Then this, Jesus was raised historically. He was raised historically. This is good news. Jesus was raised from the dead by God because why? What does the text say? Death could not hold him. Death couldn't hold him. Here's the amazing news. Yes, your sin was the reason his death was necessary, but God didn't leave Jesus dead. In fact, the, tr- the text says it was impossible for de- death to hold the God of the universe down. It was impossible. Our sin made it necessary, but his resurrection defeated death. It defeated sin. Death had no power over Jesus. Peter is using a metaphor here uh, in in verse 24. uh, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. This this metaphor, this loosing the pangs of death is is really a metaphor about childbirth, honestly. And Bertram, the commentator, says this. He says, the abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. So I've never been pregnant. Newsflash. Shocker, I know. But I have lived beside two and a half-ish pregnancies. And here's the reality. Those last weeks, months are very hard, right? Like there's lots of discomfort and you're just like ready for that kid to be gone. The kid has to come out. I mean, the jury's still out on us for if number three will, but I'm pretty sure it's going to. Um, Even if in the first 60 minutes of their life, they just scream because they hate coming out like Tobias did, um, they're going to come out. They have to, like, they can't be in the womb forever. Like, they're either coming out on their own or they're getting evicted, right? It has to happen. No more than a womb can hold a baby forever could death have ever held Jesus forever. That's what Peter's saying. This is Peter's point. Jesus was a real dude who really historically and decisively defeated death His life is being attested to by God. His death, they were all part of this greater plan for him to defeat sin and death. This Jesus. That is this Jesus. And yet, for us, so often we treat sin like it has some power over us, don't we? Like, how often do you find yourself thinking something like, well, I was alone again, so I fell into that sin, or man, that person said that thing to me, so I had to respond this way, or they cut me off in traffic, therefore I had to yell at them. Like, we treat it as though sin has this power, and it's this inevitable response from us. And yes, we're sinners, but sin doesn't have to have power. Jesus defeated that power by raising from the dead. So what sins are you allowing to have power in your life? What things are you treating as though there's some inevitable response based on what's happening? 
Jesus defeated death. Sin leads to death. Jesus defeated sin. Don't give sin more power than it has. Yeah, we're going to struggle with sin. We won't ever be perfect. But we don't have to fall to temptation. Peter unpacks who Jesus is in three specific ways for us from this text. The first, Jesus is the defeater of death. The second is this, Jesus is the greatest point of Scripture. Jesus is the greatest point of Scripture. Peter quotes here in verses 25 through 28, he quotes directly from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 in the Old Testament. And then in verses 29 through 31, he's just going to unpack or exegete or explain those passages for us and why he used them and what they mean. So we're going to go on a little journey to see why all of that happens. But let me give you the main point, and then we'll take the journey together. So here's the main point. Jesus is greater than David, so much so that David made Jesus the point of Psalm 16. Let me say that again. Jesus is greater than David, so much so that David made Jesus the point of Psalm 16. Okay, so you ready to take the journey, do a little deep dive, roll up our sleeves and go? Okay, so one of you is ready. The rest of you are coming anyway. So here we go. Verse 25. Look, let your eyes fall on verse 25. What does it say? For David says concerning him. Who's the him? This is the Sunday school answer. It's easy. Who's him? Jesus. Thank you. Yes, in the context, it has to be Jesus. So for David says concerning Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 16. So what is he saying? In essence, Psalm 16 is all about Jesus. That's what Peter tells us, right? Right from the get-go. Peter comes out saying that David wrote this psalm about Jesus. Look, we say this all the time, but this is just further proof that Jesus is the storyline of Scripture. Time and time and time again, the New Testament authors prove that in the way that they use the Old Testament. That alone is a fascinating study that we don't have time to do this morning. But how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament, they always point us to Jesus from the Old Testament. And let's be honest, these Jewish people wouldn't have probably seen Jesus in Psalm 16. They probably didn't know that that was true. They maybe didn't even read it as messianic or about the Messiah because David wrote it and it seems so personal and about David. And yet Peter's like, "Um, sorry guys, you missed it. This isn't about David. Let me say this. We can't understand the Old Testament rightly without Jesus. Nor can we understand Jesus rightly without the Old Testament. Both things are true. We can't understand the Old Testament rightly without Jesus, and we can't understand Jesus rightly without the Old Testament. The whole storyline of Scripture is about Jesus. So let's look at Peter's explanation, then coming out of this quoted psalm. He says, this psalm couldn't have been about David. Why? Why couldn't it have been about David? Because David was dead, buried, he's still in the tomb. And this psalm, go back to it, let your eyes fall on verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You won't abandon my soul to death. Well, guess what? We got a problem because David's dead. So his soul would have been abandoned to death. So Peter's like, this, this can't be about David. Because he's dead. And why does Peter specifically use this argument? Well, because 
David's tomb was a really big deal, actually, um, in the context of uh, Jerusalem. So the history of David's tomb was really, really well known, specifically because of Herod. Um, Okay, so fair warning. I'm a biblical archaeology nerd. We're going to go on that journey. You get to go with me. So here we go. Like, for instance, this week, they found a bunch of new scroll fragments at Qumran where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. They have Nahum and Zechariah from the first century, and I was like geeking out and giddy about it. So you're welcome. Here we go. So David's tomb. So Flavius Josephus, who is one of the most well-known Jewish historians, chronicles three important events that are around the tomb of David. Okay, so the first was this. John Harkanes robbed David's tomb for money. So he had this big thing he wanted to fund, so he heard that David's tomb had lots of money in it, so he opened it up, he took all the money out, he did his thing, closed the tomb back up, never touched the body, but just went into the first chamber, stole all the money, did all of that. So Herod comes along later and says, you know what, that's actually a good idea. I have some things I'd like to fun. So he decides he's going to open the tomb of David, take some money out of it himself. Only the problem was he opened it up and found out that first dude actually took all of it. So he didn't have a whole lot left. So he decided, okay, what we're going to do is we know that there's probably expensive furniture and all this in the inner chamber where David's body would have actually been. So we're going to open that up and we're going to go in and we're going to take that and we'll sell that. And that's how we'll fund. So he sent two of his guards in to do that. Problem is, they were both killed by fire as they tried to enter in some, what history records as some sort of supernatural event where they were just consumed by fire trying to enter the tomb of David. So Herod was like, well, that's a bad plan. And in fact, Herod was extremely fanatical and actually really religious, not in terms of Christianity, but was all into deity and all of that. And so what he did was he decided, you know what? That was so crazy, I'm going to actually make a monument to this thing because David is actually probably a really awesome dude. So this is actually a picture from the Shrine of the Book in Israel, Um, and this is a reconstruction of uh, Israel or Jerusalem in the time. So off to the, your left side here, yes, your right side, like I said, uh, is... So Anna, show them the picture of, so they see what they're looking for. So this is a reconstruction of what that monument looked like. So go back to the first slide now. So you can see that over here on this side. Over here is the temple mound, okay? So the temple mound was the highest, most glorious thing, right? Because it's the temple where God resided. But look, as you look on there, what's the highest thing other than the temple mound? This monument to David's tomb. It was a huge deal in Jerusalem. If you were in Jerusalem, you knew this thing was there, right? It's like going to New York and seeing the 9-11 monument, right? Like, you know why it's there. You know what it's representing. This is what would have happened in Jerusalem. Everybody would have probably seen it. It was a sight to see. They wanted to be there and see it. And so this is what it was. It was made of marble, and it was glorious. It was this huge, huge thing. So... That's what he's saying, right? Like, you all know David's in that tomb because you've all seen it. He's still there. His body was never touched. You all know the story. It's historically there. And David was this huge historical figure for the nation of Israel, right? Like the greatest king ever in the nation of Israel. And he's still in the tomb. But Jesus was greater than David. 
Jesus defeated death. Jesus was the fulfillment of the one who would sit on the throne of David, right? 2 Samuel 7 tells us that, and we see it here in verse 30 that Peter reminds us, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, right? David wasn't going to sit on the throne forever. One of his descendants was, and that descendant is Jesus, it's kind of like, uh, remember Paul, so Paul, before he became Paul, when he was Saul, what, what was he doing? He was persecuting Christians, persecuting the church, going around. He was this awesome guy in terms of Judaism, right? So you see all of that listed out in the book of Philippians. He just gives his resume like, I was this guy and I was this guy. He was on pace to maybe be one of the greatest Jewish leaders ever until what? He was on the road to Damascus, and he met Jesus. He got put in his place, right? That's Peter's point. The people knew David was the greatest king of Israel. He was amazing, but he wasn't Jesus. Paul thought he was pursuing the right things, but he wasn't until he met Jesus. And we're so guilty of this ourselves, aren't we? Putting people on pedestals they shouldn't be on. Maybe for you it's political stuff, right? A a president or a governor or a senator or a mayor or whatever. You you look to that person to, to be the answer to the problems that you perceive in the world. Or maybe for you it's more familial, right? Like it's your spouse and you should have a high view of your spouse. I think that's a good thing, but your spouse isn't Jesus, And they can't bear the weight of being Jesus. They're sinful people just like you who are just as much in need of a savior as you are. You can't put that weight on them. Maybe it's your kids. It's easy to put high expectations on our kids of who they should be and how they should act. Because you want their performance to bring you something, right? But Jesus has to be that for you. Maybe for you it's personal. Maybe you put yourself on that pedestal. As though what you think and what you believe matters more than anything else. Who in your life is where Jesus should be? Who has the tendency to creep into that spot? Who do you expect to bring you what only Jesus can? Peter unpacks who Jesus is for us in three specific ways from this text. The first, Jesus is the defeater of death. Jesus is the greatest point of scripture. And then the third, this, Jesus is exalted above all. Jesus is exalted above all. Jesus is all that Peter has said up to this point, and he is more. He is Lord, and he is Christ. Peter's just going to rapid fire for us here in these last verses who this Jesus is, right? You see that phrase repeated a couple times, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus. I want you to not miss who Jesus is. And so here's where he goes. This Jesus was raised up. He was raised up. God raised him from the dead. Again, we've already unpacked this. He defeated death decisively. He was raised. This Jesus was witnessed. We are all witnesses. 
You are a witness to it. Remember, what's happening in the context of what's going on right now, the Holy Spirit is moving, people are speaking in tongues, they are speaking the gospel. This whole thing that is happening is a testimony to who Jesus is and what he has done. That's what it's all about. The witness of Jesus was huge to the apostles. Jesus walked the earth for 40 days. After his resurrection, just demonstrating to all of these people, yes, I really did raise from the dead. Yes, I really did raise from the dead. And it's so much so that it's talked about in various places throughout uh, the New Testament of that being uh, so important to the fact that we're grounding who Jesus was and the fact that he actually raised from the dead in historical fact. It was huge to them. Without seeing that, would they have known? They wouldn't have known that Jesus raised and defeated death. But now they do, and they can witness to that. Next, Peter says, He was exalted at the right hand of God, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Why? Why the right hand of God? It's a position of power and authority and rule, right? Jesus is presently and actively in that place. So he didn't just come to earth, live his life, die, raise, and now he's just hanging out, kind of letting us do our own thing. No, he is presently and actively reigning in power and authority and rule right now in this world, sitting at the right hand of God. Amen. We don't have to fear what's going on in the world. Jesus is actively and presently in control. He didn't take his hand off the wheel. The next thing he says is this. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Again, remember what's happening. They are in Acts 1. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They were told to just wait and hang out and wait for the Holy Spirit to empower them to do the thing. Who got it first? Jesus received the Holy Spirit first in order to, what? Keep reading. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what did Jesus do? He received the Spirit so he could pour out the Spirit and actually have believers indwelt with the Holy Spirit for the first time. Daryl Bach, a commentator, said this about that. Jesus serves as an active figure in salvation and a mediator of God's blessing that leads to salvation and righteousness. The distribution of the Spirit is a messianic executive act. Jesus is actively and presently giving you the benefits of salvation, one of those being the indwelling of the Spirit. It's amazing. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit and then poured out the Holy Spirit. And the next thing we see is this. He is Lord. He's Lord. The term Lord in this context shows in particular Jesus' lordship over salvation and the distribution of salvation's benefits. So he is both head of salvation and the chief one who is actually distributing its benefits to us. Jesus is that actively involved. I think oftentimes we stop and we think, oh man, like Jesus raised from the dead and that's awesome. And then he ascended and now he's just kind of like hanging out. No, he is actively and presently lord over salvation and making sure that we receive salvation's benefits. It's awesome. 
F.F. Bruce said this. He said, Lord, not only as a bearer of a courtesy title, but as a bearer of the name which is above every name. Philippians 2 says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Again, we're talking Jewish context here. Put yourself in the shoes. There was only one name above, above, above every name to a Jewish person. It was Yahweh. So much so that they wouldn't even speak the name of Yahweh. They would say Adonai as they would read the Old Testament because it was that high, that holy, that mighty to them. And what does Adonai mean? It means Lord. The very thing that Jesus is called here. The name above every name. He's Lord. This Jesus is Christ. This Jesus is Christ. The Christ is the figure of deliverance, right? He's Messiah. It's the one they've been waiting for to deliver them. God raised Jesus to come directly into his presence in heaven. F.F. Bruce said this, when he claimed to be the Messiah, the son of the blessed, his claim was rejected as false and judged to be worthy of death. But God has vindicated his claim as true and brought him back from death, exalting him to the highest place that heaven affords. They wanted to, they killed him for saying he was the Christ, right? But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand. That's this Jesus, church. Is this Jesus that big of a deal to you? Is this who Jesus is to you? Is Jesus highly exalted in your life? Is his name higher than any other name in your life? Because look, God went to great lengths to exalt Jesus, right? He attested to him and made sure that history recorded who he was and is. He crafted all of scripture to point to him. And he did all of this so that we would exalt him. Exalt him with our mouths, exalt him with our lives, exalt him with our thoughts, exalt him with our actions. Right? Go back to Philippians. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We should be exalting Jesus. He's greater, he's stronger, he's worthy, church. This Jesus, this Jesus we worship. Don't miss who Jesus really is. Don't make him less than he really is. He's strong and mighty and powerful and reigning. This is the Jesus that we need to be exalting, not just with words, but in the way that we live and act and think this Jesus. Let's pray. God, we confess that so often we, we minimize who Jesus is in reality and the way that we live and think and act. 
We so often make him less than who he really is. He's so much stronger, so much more powerful, so much more mighty. And yet we settle for some lesser version because we get in our own way or we put other people where he should be or we put other things where he should be. God, forgive us for that. Convict us of that. God, ultimately, draw us to be closer to Jesus. Even as we're reminded this morning from this text of just who he is and what he has done. God, would you help us to exalt him, not just in word, but in how we live, that our lives become an act of worship to him. Let his name be the highest thing that we adore. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we exalt him together?